Part 2, Chapter 8, Section 85 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 8, Events in the Public Life of Jesus, Exclusive of the Miracles. Section 85, Isolated Groups of Anecdotes, Imputation of a League with Beelzebub, and demand of a sign in conformity with the aim of our criticism we shall here confine our attention to those narratives in which the influence of the legend may be demonstrated the strongest evidence of this influence is found where one narrative is blended with another or where the one is a mere variation of the other hence chronology having refused us its aid we shall arrange the anecdotes about to be considered according to their mutual affinity. To begin with the more simple form of legendary influence, Schulz has already complained that Matthew mentions two instances in which a league with Beelzebub was imputed to Jesus, and a sign demanded from him, circumstances which in Mark and Luke happen only once. The first time the imputation occurs, Matthew chapter 9 verse 32 and following, Jesus has cured the dumb demoniac. At this the people marvel, but the Pharisees observe, he casts out demons through the prince of the demons. Matthew does not here say that Jesus returned any answer to this accusation. On the second occasion, chapter 12 verse 22 and following, it is a blind and dumb demoniac whom Jesus cures. Again, the people are amazed, and again the Pharisees declare that the cure is effected by the help of Beelzebub, the archon of the demons, whereupon Jesus immediately exposes the absurdity of the accusation. That it should have been alleged against Jesus more than once when he cast out demons is in itself probable it is however suspicious that the demoniac who gives occasion to the assertion of the pharisees is in both instances dumb in the second only blindness is added demoniacs were of many kinds every variety of malady being ascribed to the influence of evil spirits why then should the above imputation be not once attached to the cure of another kind of demoniac but twice to that of a dumb one. The difficulty is heightened if we compare the narrative of Luke chapter 11 verse 14 and following, which, in its introductory description of the circumstances, corresponds not to the second narrative in Matthew, but to the first. For as there, so in Luke, the demoniac is only dumb, and his cure and the astonishment of the people are told with precisely the same form of expression, in all which points the second narrative of Matthew is more remote from that of Luke. But with this cure of the dumb demoniac, which Matthew represents as passing off in silence on the part of Jesus, Luke connects the very discourse which Matthew appends to the cure of the one both blind and dumb, so that Jesus must on both these successive occasions have said the same thing. This is a very unlikely repetition, and united with the improbability 
that the same accusation should be twice made in connection with a dumb demoniac, it suggests the question whether legend may not here have doubled one and the same incident. How this can have taken place, Matthew himself shows us, by representing the demoniac as, in the one case, simply dumb, in the other, blind also. Must it not have been a striking cure which excited, on the one hand, the astonishment of the people, on the other, this desperate attack of the enemies of Jesus? Dumbness alone might soon appear an insufficient malady for the subject of the cure, and the legend, ever prone to enhance, might deprive him of sight also. If, then, together with this new form of the legend, the old one too was handed down, what wonder that a compiler, more conscientious than critical, such as the author of the first gospel, adopted both as distinct histories, merely omitting on one occasion the discourse of Jesus for the sake of avoiding repetition. Matthew, having omitted, chapter 9, verse 34, the discourse of Jesus, was obliged also to defer the demand of a sign, which required a previous rejoinder on the part of Jesus, until his second narration of the charge concerning Beelzebub. And in this point again, the narrative of Luke, who also attaches the demand of a sign to the accusation, is parallel with a later passage of Matthew. But Matthew not only has, with Luke, a demand of a sign in connection with the above charge, he also has another after the second feeding of the multitude, chapter 16, verse 1 and following. And this second demand Mark also has, chapter 8, verse 11 and following, while he omits the first. Here the Pharisees come to Jesus, according to Matthew, in the unlikely companionship of Sadducees, and tempt him by asking for a sign from heaven. To this Jesus gives an answer, of which the concluding proposition, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. In Matthew, agrees word for word with the opening of the earlier refusal. It is already improbable enough that Jesus should have twice responded to the above requisition with the same enigmatical reference to Jonah, but the words, verses 2 and 3, which in the second passage of Matthew precede the sentence last quoted, are totally unintelligible. For why Jesus in reply to the demand of his enemies that he would show them a sign from heaven, should tell them that they were indeed well versed in the natural signs of the heavens, but were so much the more glaringly ignorant of the spiritual signs of the messianic times, is so far from evident that the otherwise unfounded omission of verses 2 and 3 seems to have arisen from despair of finding any connection for them. Luke who also has, chapter 12, verse 54 and following, in words only partly varied, this reproach of Jesus that his cotemporaries understood better the signs of the weather than of the times, gives it another position, which might be regarded as the preferable one, 
since after speaking of the fire which he was to kindle and the divisions which he was to cause jesus might very aptly say to the people you take no notice of the unmistakable prognostics of this great revolution which is being prepared by my means so ill do you understand the signs of the times but on a closer examination luke's arrangement appears just as abrupt here as in the case of the two parables chapter thirteen verse eighteen if from hence we turn again to matthew we easily see how he was led to his mode of representation he may have been induced to double the demand of a sign by the verbal variation which he met with the required sign being at one time simply called a simion at another a simion ectuuranu if he knew that jesus had exhorted the jews to study the signs of the times as they had hitherto studied the appearance of the heavens the conjecture was not very remote that the jews had given occasion for this admonition by demanding a sign from heaven thus matthew here presents us as luke often does elsewhere with a fictitious introduction to a discourse of jesus a proof of the proposition advanced indeed but too little regarded by seifert that it is in the nature of traditional records such as the three first gospels that one particular should be best preserved in this narrative another in that so that first one and then the other is at a disadvantage in comparison with the rest end of section eighty five